So today we begin the first of four sermons that focus on the person of Jesus Christ. Today we're looking at the baptism of Jesus. Next week we will look at the temptation of Jesus. On Palm Sunday we will preach the text of Jesus and his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And on Easter morning we will focus on the resurrection. And I think why this is always so critical and really every part of God's word is focused on Jesus, is that we always have a need to relook and re sort of focus our attention on Jesus, to know who he is, to know what he's done for us. But not simply to know about Jesus and about what he's done, that's very important, but also to understand how Jesus ought to be, for those of us who know Christ, our actual identity in real life. And I think that's the struggle for all of us in this room. We are all tempted to put our identity in everything but Jesus. Probably a daily occurrence, maybe an hourly occurrence, an hourly temptation for all of you. I know what happens to me this week. Um, I, as you know, we, we got back on the water. I'm rowing, which is great, but I don't like to be the coxswain in a, in a boat. It's very difficult to steer a boat, okay? You have to steer. The rowers don't cooperate with you because the port side is stronger than the starboard side. It also happens to be dark, which can, it's very difficult to see the bridge, okay? You don't want to hit the bridge. You don't want to hit the buoys. You don't want to hit the logs. And uh, I told the, the club, they had this survey last week, and I said, listen, I, I, I'm willing to cox, but I haven't coxed in four years, and I'm not that good at it. It'll be a very rough ride, and the very first day I come back to row, I'm coxing. And I am telling you, my blood pressure was up. Five in the morning, I got the, 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 the email that said, you're coxing today. And my blood pressure went up and up. I thought I was going to have a little heart attack, kind of hoping I was. I get in the boat. I got a microphone. I'm barely able to remember what to do. I haven't done this in years. I do tell the, the, the boat, my boat, I'm sorry I haven't coxed in four years. This is going to be a rough ride. I'm also a pastor, so if we sink, I will pray for you, <laughs> baptize you. But it was awful. I had trouble listening to what the coaches were saying because I was having trouble just keeping the boat straight. I was a drunk driver and I was just weaving down the, down the course. The coach actually had to stop our boat a couple of times because we were about to crash into different things, which we didn't do, thankfully. And then the coach basically, and the coach actually said, I'm going to call, which I normally would have done if I was a competent cox, I'm going to have to tell the boat what to do. We hit a couple of buoys, which some of the rowers said, watch the buoys, watch where we're going. I did this disaster. And I got done with that, walked to my car, put my head on my steering wheel, and I really just felt like an abject failure. My identity was not in Jesus, it was in coxing, and that wasn't working too well as an identity. But my fear is that you do it, and I do it, way more often than we ought to. You put your identity in a career or in a relationship or how well things are going with your kids. You put it in 101 different places rather than put 
your identity in the only identity that has any hope of providing you with security and hope and joy. And that's why we need to study these four pictures of Jesus as we get ready to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this morning, I want us uh, to make two connections with Jesus from the baptism narrative. And I'm very sorry for you, 9 o'clock service. Um, we are doing baptisms, but we're, we're only doing them at 11.30. I hope it's because all of you have been baptized. If you have not, well, maybe this will convict you to think about it. So we're baptizing a few, um, actually, um, middle school students in, at, uh, at 11.30. You, know, you can stick around for that. It's really exciting to see the next generation of the church publicly identifying with Christ through baptism. But today, unless I have a volunteer at the last moment, no baptisms at nine. So I'm sorry about that. But nevertheless, we can dive into our text. We want to make these two connections, and we want to see how Jesus' baptism teaches his two truths about Jesus, but also to make those connections to us personally from, the, this, from this baptism narrative. So I want to make the two connections, but first I want to give you a little bit of a historical understanding of what is happening as Jesus goes to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist. So John the Baptist, you see in verse 1 of chapter 3, he came and he comes, he's preaching in the wilderness of Judah, Judea. He's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And of course, this is what is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist was foretold in the Old Testament. In some sense, John the Baptist is, in some sense, the last great Old Testament prophet as he bridges the Old Testament with the New Testament in the coming of Jesus. And John is preaching about the nearness of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the rule and reign of God is coming. It's coming. Why? Because the king is coming. In a very real sense, what John the Baptist is, is preaching about is that the culmination of everything we read about in the Old Testament is coming to completion in the person of Jesus. And John was an interesting guy. He wore a garment of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist. Verse 4, his food was locust and wild honey. And here's a fascinating part of this narrative. In Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going to him. They were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. You seem to have a lot of people were getting out of Jerusalem and going to the Jordan River, which would have been out sort of in the wilderness. It would have been no man's land. Many people are coming, and they're being baptized. Now, what's fascinating about this is I suspect that most of the people that John the Baptist was baptizing were, were, were from Israel. They were, they were Jewish people. But baptism was often the sign of a Gentile becoming a proselyte to Judaism. So in a very real sense, the people of God, Israel, are flocking to, to John the Baptist, repenting of their sins. And expressing that repentance in baptism, which would have been the same thing a proselyte would have to do if he was going to be part of the people of God, Israel. 
That's a, it's a massive thing. You read this just quickly and you say, well, that's, this is a huge deal. This is incredible. And in verse 7, you see, when many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to, to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John the Baptist was not a gentle preacher. I can only imagine what would happen if I called some of you a brood of vipers. That would probably be my last Sunday here. What's interesting is that the religious leaders are going out to the wilderness in the middle of nowhere to see this. Why? Because many people are flocking to John the Baptist and they want to know what's going on. And again, John calls them to repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not and then and notice this. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, John the Baptist is saying to the people of God, Israel, as they come to be baptized, don't assume that just because you're part of God's family by birth that you are right with God. God can make children of you know, Abraham come up from the stones. You need to repent. You need to get ready for the Messiah who is to come. In verse 11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he was coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. John the Baptist, prophesied in the Old Testament, has come to prepare the way for the culmination of everything that Israel taught, everything that Israel experienced, all of the sacrifices were pointing to one person, all of the commands of God were pointing to one person, all of the narrative of Israel's history is pointing to one person who would come to redeem them and the world, it's Jesus. That's a little bit of the history. And so now we come to make the first connection with Jesus. It's interesting, in this spiritual revival of God's people, Jesus shows up at the River Jordan to be baptized by John. And the interchange between John the Baptist and Jesus that we need to make the first connection with is fairly fascinating, right? We pick it up in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? In other words, John the Baptist is saying, I, I, I don't need to baptize you. You need to baptize me. Well, of course. John the Baptist seems to be making sense here. I mean, the people are coming to be baptized. Why? To confess their sins and to repent. Jesus was the sinless son of God. He did, had committed no sin. He was the spotless lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. He did not need to confess sin and be baptized. And yet there Jesus is preparing to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. In verse 15, Jesus provides the answer to why he would want to be baptized by John the Baptist. He says, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. This first connection with Jesus is to understand that Jesus Christ, 
fulfilled perfectly the righteousness that Father God demanded of him. And so in his baptism, in Jesus being willing to be baptized, he is acknowledging that he is willing to do exactly what Father God had told him to do in order to redeem Israel, but also to redeem the world from their sins. He is publicly declaring, in some sense, at the baptism, I am going to follow my Father's will and to die for Israel, but to die for the sins of the world in order to bring back people to himself. Why don't you turn to an interesting passage in, in, uh, in, in Psalm 40. If you turn to Psalm 40, it's a, a psalm that's you know, written by a psalmist, but it, it does seem to indicate what we're talking about. What does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus wanted to fulfill all righteousness? He, he, he's acknowledging that he's willing to do his Father's will completely. Look at verse 6 of Psalm 40. It says, in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offerings and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Many believe Psalm 40 is alluding to the fact that Jesus Christ will fulfill the law perfectly. He will do what Israel should have done. He will do what any Israelite should have done. He follows God's law and his will perfectly. And therefore, at the baptism, in his willingness to be baptized, he's not being baptized because of sin. He has no sin. But he is being baptized in order to indicate his willingness to do all that the Father has directed him to do in order to provide redemption for his people. Of course, what else do you have? Back to Matthew 3 here. Matthew, uh, the gospel writer, shows Jesus as the king. And what, what Jesus is doing by going into the Jordan River, he's identifying with his people. He's identifying with the sinful people of God. He is going under the water like every Israelite was going under the water to confess sin, not because Jesus needs to confess sin, but because Jesus is indicating that in the future he will be one who will take the sin of the people in their place. The New Testament writers talk about it like this. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So at his baptism, Jesus' baptism, he is identifying with his subjects, his people. He's identifying with sinful people because he will be sin for them. He's, he's fulfilling God's plan of redemption, which involved him coming all the way out of heaven, taking on a human body, living a perfect life, dying in our place, so that he could bring us back to God. And the statement of baptism, in some sense, is publicly, Jesus is declaring, I am prepared to do all that my Father wanted to do in order to redeem us.
Now, we know this. We sing about this every week. We celebrate communion once a month. We'll celebrate a couple of baptisms at 11.30 this morning. All of that is picturing Jesus' obedience to his Father God in fulfilling the plan of redemption for us. He identifies with us in his baptism because he will bear our sin and become sin for us. We know that about Jesus, but my fear is during some parts of every day, that reality does not grip you personally like it ought to. I mean, this is the kind of God we have here in the Bible. A God who comes all the way out of heaven, does exactly what his father wanted, does what Israel should have done, does what, any, what all of us should have done. He does it perfectly and well, but he's willing to identify with you and me in that baptism because one day he will have our sin upon him. This is what God has done for us in Jesus. And if we rightly understood this, it would take a lot of us... A lot of energy not to be falling down on our faces multiple times a day saying, thank you, God, for this. Thank you, God, for Jesus. But the reality is there's only one person in the universe that can actually harm you forever, and that's God himself. And that God, who has the power of life and death over every human being, came all the way out of heaven, put on a body, did exactly what the Father wanted him to do, fulfilled all righteousness, and then was willing to take your sin, uh, our sin upon himself so that, he could give you, so that he could give us his righteousness so that we could be right with the only person in the world who can really harm us. And what do we do with that truth? We put it in the back of our minds. We worship on Sunday morning. And by Sunday afternoon, what are we worried about? We're worried about what other people think about us. We're worried about our careers. We're worried about our children. And our identity is all wrapped up in these things. If our careers are going well, we rejoice. But, you know, your career usually doesn't, it doesn't usually do this. Eventually, you're going to quit or be fired or laid off. And yet you put your identity in that thing. Some of you put your identity in your children, your teenage children. That's crazy. A teenager is, by definition, erratic. But some of you do that. When your kids are going well, you feel good about yourself. When the kids aren't doing so good, you freak out. And what do you do? You forget that Jesus Christ became sin for you. He fulfilled all righteousness. He did what we could not do, what Israel could not do, in order to bring us back to himself. That connection, rightly understood, should change the way you respond to every trial that you're experiencing presently, to every high and every low. It will keep you centered. It will keep you joyful. It will keep you hopeful. Because we have a Jesus who did that for you. Let's look at the second connection. Verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, 
to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Oh, there's a lot here. One thing I'd like to say about the baptism is that when you read this, the baptism of Jesus, just the verses 13 through 17, it's easy just to read those through very quickly, but the reality is almost every aspect of Old Testament theology is being uh, fulfilled in that text. And you'll read it and you'll, you won't see it, but it's there. I'm not going to focus on the Spirit of God. That, that, would, that would be another sermon. I want to focus on this voice from heaven. It said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I want you to turn to Isaiah 42.1. I want you to see that this is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that Jesus is being attested to by Father God in this voice who was identifying Jesus as the one whom the entire Old Testament was prophesying about. Isaiah 42, 1 says, Behold my servant who I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This prophecy in Isaiah is looking forward to Jesus. It's looking forward to the Messiah. And when God the Father's voice comes out of heaven and says, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is the identification that Jesus Christ is this beloved son. We don't have time to turn there, but in 2 Corinthians, 2 Samuel, excuse me, 7, 13, and 14, the, the, the term son is often used to describe the lineage of the Davidic kings. In fact, God will even talk to them as they are my son, as they, they, they proceed from father to son, from father to son, and so on. And so when God the Father says, this is my beloved son, he is saying that this Jesus is the promised one, the Davidic king promised in the Old Testament, who will rule and reign over his people. He is the son of God, it's also describing here. God the Father is authenticating that Jesus Christ is not simply a man, but he's the son of God, equal with God, the son of David. In the Davidic line is foretold in the Old Testament. And of course, I think it has allusions to the fact that he's the suffering servant. Mentioned in the prophets, all pointing to Jesus. And what's happening here is that everything in the Old Testament is coming to fruition in this one person, Jesus Christ. Many scholars will point out that what you see in the Jordan River, with Jesus being in the Jordan River, is in some sense a recapitulation of Israel's history. One of the greatest moments in Israel's history is when they walked through the Red Sea, when they were in the waters of the Red Sea, and God delivered them through the waters of the Red Sea, and then what happened? They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus, by going into the waters of the Jordan River indicating he was fulfilling all righteousness, indicating that he was the Davidic son of God promised in the Old Testament. He's recapitulating the history of Israel because what's going to happen next week is Jesus is going to come out of the waters of the Jordan River and he's going to be in the desert for 40 days. 
What is happening here is that the entire history of Israel, all of the sacrifices of Israel, all of the commands of Israel, all of the hopes and dreams of Israel are being fulfilled in this Jesus, their Messiah. Everything in the Old Testament is now happening in Jesus. And in a very real sense, he's not only the, the recapitulation of Israel's history, but he's the fulfillment of everything that Israel was pointing to is in this Jesus and is all encapsulated in this phrase, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I think sometimes it's easy for us to sing about Jesus, to pray to Jesus even, and not to recognize who he really is. And the baptism clearly says this Jesus is not a mere mortal. It's the Son of God. It's the Davidic king prophesied in the Old Testament. It's the fulfillment that everything Israel was supposed to be. It's a recapitulation of Israel's history plus the fulfillment of all Israel's history is all happening in this one person, Jesus the Messiah. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And that means Jesus is worthy of our worship. We're worshiping a king this morning. We're worshiping the son of God, who is God himself in the flesh. We are worshiping the son of God who was perfect, who never sinned, and yet he will become sin for us and give us the righteousness that we can never manufacture on our own so we can, we can know God, not only now but forever. And this is the one that ought to be our actual and functional identity. It's interesting, I read this little uh, essay. And it's a story of a person who came to faith in Christ. And he came to faith in Christ through this baptism narrative that we've just read. Now, I thought this was strange. This is not what I usually do with a friend who's asking questions. Hey, let's turn to the baptism of Jesus. This is great. I mean, it's God's word, but, you know, I'll go with John 3.16, Romans 5.8. So here's what this person wrote. He was in a relationship with some other believers. They were encouraging him to read the Gospels, and he was. And what he says is, they ask him, well, how did you come to put your faith and confidence in Christ alone? And here's what he writes. I got to the place where Jesus was baptized and the father spoke words over him saying, thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And everything I had been reading in the gospels finally came into place. The believers said, the baptism story? That's an odd part of scripture for a conversion story. What about the baptism story got to you, they ask. He says, well, right then, I realized all this talk about trusting Jesus and being a true child of God meant that whatever God said about his son, he could say about me. He loved me, 
not because I was smart or special or I had great talents or gifts. It wasn't because I was living the good Christian life I was trying so hard to get right on my own. He just looked at me and loved me. He delighted in me like a father delighting in his children. It suddenly all made sense. And that's how you connect the baptism of Jesus to your life. When God the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, and you, by faith, trust in Jesus alone to save you from your sin, you become identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection spiritually. That's what Romans 6 tells us. And because you're identified with Jesus Christ, when God looks at you, in a fundamental sense, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't fundamentally see all of your failures and all of your shortcomings. He looks at you and he sees the beauty and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, God the Father can delight in you, not because of your performance, but because you rest in the work of Jesus Christ plus nothing. Do you believe that? Are you holding on to that? See, I think sometimes we know that God's grace, we know we, we enter into life with God by faith and it's all by grace, but almost we can turn that around and then we try so hard to live the Christian life in our own strength, we lose a grip of grace on grace, don't we? person who came to faith through the baptism story also said this and I saw how deep my sin was how foolish I was to try and fix myself how silly my attempts at being a good man looked compared to King Jesus and then I saw grace I could look through Jesus's righteousness and hear God say you are my beloved son in you I am well pleased And here I hadn't done anything. I haven't lived right. I hadn't loved right. I haven't even had the right motive for going to church and reading my Bible. But he loved me anyway. He loved me when I was prideful and self-righteous and using people. He loved me when I was trying my best to earn his approval. Because my relationship is based on Jesus. One last quote from this believer, new believer. He says, as I realized what Jesus had done for me, the tears started rolling down my cheeks. I knelt by my bed. I confessed my sin, and I said over and over again, thank you, Jesus. I'm yours. Whatever you want, Jesus. And he says, in the back of my mind, I heard God's voice clear as day, like an echo in a canyon. I delight in you just because you're mine. I delight in you because you belong to me. I delight in you because you are in Christ. I loved my son and now I love you. And right then and there I knew God had accepted me because of Jesus. That's what we need to take with us. The second connection is to see that in Jesus we are the children of God. And he delights in us in spite of our failures, in spite of our wandering, in spite of our sin even. He delights in us. And when we see that, that does not make us go more rebellious. That brings us back 
the love of Christ constrains us and brings us back to himself. And we need to grab a hold of that connection as well. Let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, I confess to you that I can lose sight of your grace. I confess to you that I can make some other identity other than you my functional identity, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see in this little section of Scripture that we have a Jesus, a Messiah, who fulfilled all righteousness, who did exactly what the Father wanted in order to redeem us, and was willing in that to identify with sinful people in that baptism, knowing that one day he would actually become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. I pray, Lord, that when we see, we hear, and we read about God's identification of Jesus as the Son, the Son of God, equal with God, the second person of the Trinity, but also the Davidic King come to fulfill the promises given in the Old Testament. When we see Jesus, the one who's redoing, in a very real sense, the history of Israel and then fulfilling that history in that baptism. We see God the Father saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. I pray that we would also see that if we have trusted Christ alone for our salvation, if we are truly in Christ by faith, God the Father can look at us because we're in Christ and say the very same thing. You are my son. You are my daughter, and I delight in you because you're in Christ. And I pray that that joy and that security and that relationship and that identity would frame the way we think, the way we act, the way we worship, the way we work, the way we treat other people. For the glory of God, in Jesus' name, amen.